I also thank you to Pastor Matt and to the uh, leadership of Solid Rock for giving me the opportunity to speak. And it sounds like I should say thank you, Steve Long, also, from what you, what you were just sharing. Indulge me for just a moment, and uh, I'd like to show you a little more of what we do in our ministry with Africa's Hope. I think, uh, Austin, you, you characterized it very well. We work with Bible schools across Africa providing training materials for uh, pastors. Many times pastors in Africa who attend Bible school are already pastoring with just no training, and so we're trying to provide them basic Bible training. Many of them uh, their education would be lower than a high school diploma here, so we have to make sure that our authors write at a very simple level. And then my task and my team, we take that material and we try to edit it, not only to make it simple to understand in English, but to make it simple for our translation teams to be able to understand what it's supposed to be in the uh, numerous languages that we get it translated into. We don't do the translation in-house, of course. We, we work with teams in Africa, uh, more than a dozen languages. Um, and then often those come back to us. In most cases, we do the layout for those books as well. So the Swahili book that Austin mentioned, I didn't do any of the translation, but I did do the layout on that. Um, and I've got a couple of other samples up here. So you can kind of see, oh, that's what you do. Uh, this is a book on the Corinthian letters in Amharic, which is the language spoken in Ethiopia. And uh, that's something we produced a few years ago and then brand new this last year. This is a book, uh, Old Testament Survey. This is in the Hausa language, uh, which is spoken in northern Nigeria and Niger. And uh, we just, just finished this this year, so we're excited about this, a brand new language group that we're starting with our materials. So if any of you are interested and want to take a look at those, you can browse through those afterwards if that's the kind of thing that uh, that uh, excites you languages and writing and stuff like that is interesting to me if i were to ask you to name a favorite part of the bible you might uh, cite a favorite verse john 3:16 or something else there might be a significant passage that comes to your mind like 1 Corinthians 13 that Steve Long brought to us last week, the love chapter in the Bible. Maybe you have a favorite story, like one of the exciting ones involving Daniel or Esther. Maybe you have a favorite psalm, like the 23rd Psalm. But then there are some passages of Scripture that I think we'd all acknowledge can be a little bit of a struggle to get through like some of the prophetic texts that can be very dense and complicated and, and require a lot of focus and attention to, to follow what they're saying, or the genealogies, or those psalms in uh, some of the psalms that, that are just angry, imprecatory psalms where they say, God smash their teeth in their mouth. And we read things like that and go, yeah, I'm not quite sure how to how to blend that with what I think a Christian should live like. There's moral issues in the Bible that we might find troubling, like polygamy. Some of the genres that are there aren't typical to our culture, and we don't always resonate with them as much. It's, it's very easy for us to cheer when David defeats Goliath, but it's a little harder to know how to react to biblical lament. 
when somebody's pouring out their heart before God. And I'll, I'll admit that lament literature is a little difficult for me to overcome my cultural bias that it's just whining. And to be able to look past that, my, my cultural dissonance with it, and see that it comes from the depths of the author's soul. When Jesus was on the cross, he quoted a lament psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Psalm 22. And we would never say that Jesus was whining when he was on the cross. But it shows what was inside of him coming out, that depth of emotion. One of the lectionary readings for today is from a different lament psalm. It's Psalm 85. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And as we look into Psalm 85 a little more closely, I want us to try to relate to what the author is saying and then uh, also see that, that this lament has a message for us today as well. So uh, we're going to quickly walk through parts of this psalm to get an overview, and then we're going to come back around and look at a couple of issues that I think have particular relevance for us today. Psalm 85 is not just lament, it's a national lament. It's not just a personal tragedy that's in focus in this psalm. It's a national tragedy. Something big has happened. It's large scope. And it's presented in four parts, four distinct stanzas, if you will, in this psalm. It opens up remembering previous deliverance, then moves on to praying for a present need the third stanza is waiting in expectation, and then finally, the psalmist responds with trust. Let's look over each one of those as, uh, as we get a sense of what the author was saying in this psalm. In the first stanza, where he remembers previous deliverance, the psalmist writes, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. He's looking to the past. Lord, you were favorable to your land. They're looking to a previous deliverance. That, that second line of verse 1 that says, you restored the fortunes of Jacob is a technical term. Restoring the fortunes of a people is referring specifically to bringing them out of captivity, bringing them out of bondage, which gives us a clue of when this psalm might be located in Israel's history. We can't say for sure, but many think that this may have been written after the Babylonian exile. So there, at a time post-exile, Israel had been taken captive to Babylon for a period of 70 years. Many of them had then returned to their homeland in Israel and now are looking back on that time as an example of God's previous deliverance upon them. It also emphasizes God's forgiveness. The captivity had been as a result of their sin and so the psalmist is now saying, you forgave the iniquity, the sin of your people. The psalm moves on in the second stanza 
to praying for our present need. It says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. You can see some of the poetic artistry and and literary technique that the author is using here. This stanza begins and ends with mentions of salvation, framing the, the whole stanza with that topic. We, we open in verse 4 and close in verse 7, both with prayers. Restore us again. Verse 7, show us your steadfast love. And these two prayers frame a series of questions, rapid fire. Will you be angry forever? Will you not revive us again? The specific prayer that we see here, to be restored again, to be revived again. Something has happened to the nation. And we'll see later in the psalm that maybe it was related to harvest. Maybe the crops had failed in this year. We could look to another book in the Bible, Haggai, one of the prophets, uh, writing from around that, the same time, if this is after the captivity, Haggai spoke of a time when their crops had failed, a time when the people were calling out and looking for God to intervene. The third stanza is waiting in expectation. Here the psalmist writes, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to falling. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. There's a change of tone that takes place in verse 8. After these questions that he asked in the previous stanza, the pleadings of the previous stanza, now the writer steps back and says, let me hear what God will say. Let me listen. Let me be open to the voice of God because God will speak peace. The author's in a posture, a position that's ready to hear from God. And then the final stanza is responding with trust. It says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. In this stanza, qualities of God's character are framed poetically together in pairs. So in the first line, we have God's steadfast love, his covenant love, and his faithfulness meeting together. In the second line, we see righteousness and peace. It's still in this idea of meeting each other, exchanging a kiss of greeting. We see faithfulness springing up from the ground, righteousness coming down from the sky. And here it's a 
It's a, a literary device to show that from the ground to the sky, everywhere is experiencing the grace of God, much like we might say from A to Z uh, in English to, to indicate everything. Or maybe you've seen in some of the Old Testament passages where it would say they went through the land from Dan to Beersheba, from the northernmost city to the southernmost city. We can also hear an echo of this in the Lord's Prayer when he said that we should pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, everywhere. God will give what is good, he says in verse 12. The land will yield its increase. That's the hint that maybe harvest was the issue uh, behind the writing of this psalm. It's kind of interesting that although it doesn't show up in translation here, it's the same verb used in both lines. So it says that God will give what is good, the land will give its increase. Again, the the author is writing in parallel. And then the final verse, that righteousness will go before God, will prepare the way for God, will make a way for his footsteps. God, again, will walk the earth with his people as in the garden. He will dwell among his people. So that's an overview of this psalm, this lament. And I'd like to turn to a couple of thoughts of how we can relate that to today. What do we do with lament as the people of God today? How can we embrace lament as part of God's revelation to us and understand what's behind it a little better? The first thing I think is important for us to recognize is that lament is part of the expression of God's people. There is a place for lament. Lament is not weakness. Lament is not indicative of spiritual failure. Lament is not sin. There are times when your soul breaks forth in lament and it is the correct response to the situation that you are facing. Sometimes our cultural bent can be that everything is positive. Everything has to be upbeat all the time. High energy, who has time for rest, all victory all the time. Everything has to be bigger. Everything has to be better. That's kind of who we are as Americans. We, we just like that kind of energy and drive. And yet, let's be honest that life doesn't always work out that way. This, this drive for more and for high energy, it, it impacts us in the church as well. I've attended some worship services that resembled aerobic exercises. You have too. I've attended funerals that were framed as cheerful celebrations. And, and sometimes I wonder, is it just our discomfort with lament, our discomfort with some of these emotions that culturally uh, we're, we're not as, as used to? The writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us in that famous poem in chapter 3 that there is a time for everything. And right in the middle of that poem, a time to weep and a time to laugh. 
a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Weeping and mourning have a place. God did not create us to be on a spiritual high every day, every hour, all the time. There are rhythms in life. There are ebbs and flows. In times when tears are appropriate, to deny them their place is to deny how God has created us. God created us with limitations, and rather than deny these, that these limitations exist, we should embrace them. The Apostle Paul embraces his weakness in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, speaking of the thorn in the flesh, some sort of affliction that, uh, that Paul was dealing with. He said that he prayed to God to release him, relieve him from that thorn, and God's answer back was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God has created us with physical limitations. It's a good example of Jesus falling asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm, which is quite a feat. He was tired. We need rest. God has created us to experience sorrow. Isaiah 53, a prophecy of God's suffering servant, which the New Testament identifies with the Savior, with Jesus, describes that suffering servant in 53.3 as one who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Our God understands the sorrow and grief that we face. When we need healing, we can talk to God about it. When we're struggling, we can talk to God. When we grieve, it's a healthy emotion to express. We don't have to pretend that our condition is something other than it is. One of my favorite philosophers said, denial is not a Christian virtue. Lament must be significant to God and to God's people because there are so many examples of it in the Bible. It's not an argument that says the church needs to become like Eeyore, always melancholy, always down, always the glass is half empty. But it is a reminder for us that we shouldn't limit the expression of the way God has made us. And he has made us on occasion to lament. A second thought that I'd like us to examine in this psalm is that the direction that we face matters. The direction we face matters. And let me explain what I mean by that. Psalm 85.4, the psalmist said, Restore us again, O God of our salvation. The author was looking to the past. It's a prayer that says, 
make things the way that they were. And in this particular instance, looking to the past and looking backwards was appropriate. There are times when that focus is the correct focus to have. For example, when your people are in captivity, it's good to pray to God and say, God, I remember when we were not in captivity, and we look back to that time, release us from this captivity, O God. Or, for example, in the situation that the psalmist finds themselves in, they're looking to the past saying, God, just as you restored us from captivity in the past, restore us from our present crisis. Hear our prayer, O God. Currently, I think it would be a, a good application of this to look at what we face with COVID. I think it would be entirely natural for us to pray with this kind of focus, saying, God, we remember the way it was before we had to deal with this virus. Restore us, O oh God. Deliver us from this plague that's come upon the earth. However, I think that we should temper that because there's a natural tendency in us, a human tendency, to want to look backwards. There's a natural tendency to want to resist change. And I don't think that's the message that we should get from the psalm. It's not right for us to always be looking backwards. Even Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. We should not idolize the past as if it was a golden age for the church. And if only we could turn back the clock, everything would be better. The author Derek Kidner, writing about this psalm, said, Israel is not pining for past glories, which are often an optical illusion, but remembering past mercies. Their focus on the past was to look at what God had done in the past, not necessarily where they were in the past. The problem with pining for the good old days is that we tend to have a selective memory about what was part of those old days. And, and many times they weren't as good in reality as we might remember in our, in our memory. And if the church perceives its mission as trying to force society to turn the clock backward, we miss the ways in which society needs the church to help it move forward. Good example of that comes from the civil rights movement. That movement would not have happened without the Christian influences of black churches that wanted to move society forward toward equality. God's call for justice pushes us forward to identify and change systems that are unjust or oppressive. In Micah 6.8, the prophet said, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? That requires a forward focus. 
Jesus echoed that sentiment in Matthew 23, 23, in the midst of his woes to the Pharisees. He said to them that they tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, he told them. Jesus' ministry pushed his culture to move forward. Jesus was an agent of change. He didn't tell everybody that they had it better 50 years ago, and if only they could go back to the good old days, boy, wouldn't it be better for them all. One example is his Sermon on the Mount. Think of all of those places where Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. All these times where he says, this is the way it was done in the past, but now we're going to move in a new direction. When Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman asked Jesus, should we worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem? And Jesus, instead of saying, well, we're looking backwards, we're going to go back to the way it was, Jesus said, neither. An hour is coming when true worshipers are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. He's looking forward to something that's going to come, that's going to answer all the needs that the Samaritan woman has. Even the fact that Jesus spoke with a woman from Samaria challenged his disciples' thinking. That, again, was forward thinking. Jesus was pushing people, changing forward. He brought the change that allowed people to become closer to God. If we are going to be God's representatives, if we're going to pursue God's justice on this earth, then we have to be looking forward to correct injustices instead of looking to the past. The third thought I would like us to look at in this psalm is that we need to have trust when we're facing trials. The ending of this psalm, like the ending of all laments, looks forward in trust and assurance. The psalmist is saying, it's going to be okay. Things are difficult now, but they won't remain this way. It looks forward to future action of God on one's behalf. You think of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is looking backwards and thanking God for what he has done. So if you gather around the table in November on Thanksgiving and maybe you say, hey, everybody, let's go around the table and share something you're thankful for this year. You're, you're looking backwards. You're looking back and saying, this is what I'm glad God has done. You're thankful for it. Lament, in a sense, is pre-Thanksgiving. Because what lament does is it says, right now my circumstances are not that great. Right now, my circumstances are not what I wish they were, but God is going to act on my behalf, and I'm going to thank him when he does. It's looking forward to that time when there will be thankfulness from this very circumstance that we face today. In verse 8 of Psalm 85, remember the psalmist said, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. 
Sometimes all you can do is wait. You pour out your heart before God, and then you have to wait. What will God respond? What will God do? Well, for one thing, God will speak peace to you. God will speak peace to his people, the psalmist says. He comes to the bottom of this and reminds the people that God will give what is good. God will do what is right. The attitude of this psalmist reminds me of Habakkuk, one of those short prophetic books that's so hard to find at the end of the Old Testament because you know they're just a couple of pages long and you flip back and forth trying to find them. Habakkuk is a fascinating story. It's a dialogue between the prophet and God. It's only three chapters long. You can, you can read it in a single sitting. Habakkuk wrote from a previous generation to this psalmist. He wrote before the captivity. And the book of Habakkuk opens with him complaining to God and saying, God, have you seen the moral decay of this country? What a place. God, you should do something about it. We got people living in sin here. It's just bad, God, and you need to do something. And God responds and says, yes, I have seen this, and I am going to do something about it. I'm going to bring in Babylon to judge your people. And this makes Habakkuk spit out his coffee. And he says, what? How can you do that? Babylon, they are worse than we are. How can you use them to judge us? And God explains over the next chapter, chapter 2 of Habakkuk, that Babylon will have its day of reckoning as well. But they are a tool in God's hands, and this is the path that God has chosen. And so Habakkuk ends in the third chapter, the the first two-thirds of that final chapter, he's detailing what he knows is coming. And he expresses the coming storm in in vivid language of how it's going to affect the mountains and the rivers and the crops, and disaster is coming upon the people. It's it's all laid out in Habakkuk chapter 3. He knows that disaster is coming to the land. He says that his inward parts trembled thinking about it because he had to wait quietly for the day of distress. Imagine that. He has received a revelation from God of what is coming. And then he has to just sort of think about that knowledge, think about what that means for him, for his people. He says he had to wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who would invade. But then he finishes that book with a prayer of trust. And he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. 
He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. That's how we lament. That's the kind of trust and assurance that needs to be behind the lament. It's not complaining. It's not whining. It's saying, God, this is my situation. This is my circumstance. Yet, I will trust in you. Yet, I know you will do what is right. As we receive communion in a few minutes, let's remember that when Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples, the elements of a lament were there. Jesus going away was not good news. It wasn't laughter and backslapping around the, the table at that meal. The disciples were in shock. They were troubled at what Jesus had been saying. Jesus had predicted to them already. He said, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. That's not good news. That's kind of scary times ahead that he's predicting. And then at the Last Supper, in Matthew 26, he announced that he would be betrayed and said that he would go just as it is written of him. So all of these things he had predicted, all these things that he said would happen, he's telling him that night, here it is. We're at that moment. Later that night, he told them, you will all fall away because of me this night. They were hit with phrase after phrase of bad news from Jesus. But that wasn't all that he gave them, was it? He didn't just say, I'm going to be crucified, and that's it. He pointed them to the future. He said, the Son of Man will be crucified and will be raised again on the third day. He pointed them to the future when he said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's looking to the future. He's giving them hope. He's giving them assurance and reason to trust. When we receive communion, we reaffirm our trust in him. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, Paul wrote. And we look for that coming. Kevin, if you would come and begin to play, we're going to receive communion in just a moment. Laments may not fit our cultural obsession with winning, with energy, with power. But lament is part of the inspired expression of God's people. There are times when you want to lament and you should lament. Things don't always turn out the way that you want, and that's okay. It's okay to talk to God about it. God hears you. God understands your need. God will answer you. But with your lament, remember to include those elements 
of remembering what God has done for you in the past and express trust that God is going to act on your behalf in the future. Be willing to wait in hope and trust for God to deliver you in whatever current need you face. Maybe as you receive communion today, maybe it's an ideal time for you to take a current concern that you have and place it in God's hands and say, God, here's what I'm facing. I know you've acted for me in the past, and I'm praying that you will do so again today. I pray that you take the need that I have today and work in it, and then wait on God. Leave it in God's hands and be assured that he hears you and that God will respond. I'm glad to see the, the votive candles back up on the walls as a place to symbolically remember our prayers. Maybe as you receive communion today, if there's a particular need, you want to just go and light one of those candles and say a prayer for God to remember. When we receive the bread and cup today, we do it in trust and hope of his return and that God will make things right. I invite you to receive communion with us today and we'll form two lines down these two center aisles. Come to the front to receive the elements and then return back down the side aisles to your seat and take the elements there. But do think about what prayer you could bring to God today, asking him to work in your circumstance. Let's all stand together. God, I pray that as we receive communion today, that we would be reminded of your coming. We would be reminded of your return. Lord, we look for that. And we look for you to minister to us in every need that we have. We pray this today in your name.